you've been in this series for the past few weeks, we'll land the plane next week. Uh, but what we are aiming to do is look at money, uh, the way the Bible looks at money, because money is not just a great tool that we can use to evaluate what is really going on in our heart. Our money and the way we spend money, the way we give money, reflects a lot about what we love and about what we worship. That's what we talked about in the first week. We learned last week through Katie's great message that money also is put into our hands so that we can be stewards of those resources. We have been blessed to be a blessing to other people, to take care of our own household, to take care of people in our world, in our sphere of influence, but also to meet the needs of other people. And this week, what I really want to do is just kind of put some, some oars in our rowboats, if you will. If we have our kind of ch- our 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 uh, plan and our course charted for us. I want us to now put some principles into our hands that we can use, so that we can steward money and use money well, so that it doesn't grab hold of our heart the way that Jesus warns us about, and so we can kind of charter after this thing the way that we're supposed to when it comes to our finances. If you could stop for even just a moment and think about the amount of money that is going to pass through your hands throughout your life. Maybe the amount of resource, the amount of finances that you have doesn't feel all that significant in any sort of moment. You're like, man, check my bank account. There's not a lot there that's going to impress you right now. But if you think about it over time, the paychecks over time, the interest over time, the amount of resources that we are going to steward and leverage, hopefully for the kingdom of God, hopefully fully surrendered to Christ is quite a significant number. And so the principles that we put into our place, into our life today, put in place today are going to govern and steer us somewhere. I think about this when I think of uh, Kobe Bryant. You guys all remember Kobe Bryant? Hopefully. Hopefully we are not going to get to a spot where we don't remember Kobe Bryant. But uh, for those of you who don't care about basketball, you can tune out for just a sec. I give you permission. You can tune back in in just a moment. But uh, Kobe, I remember seeing this interview with him. And what made Kobe distinguished and great was he decided at a very young age that, uh, man, he saw kind of the pattern in the practice of basketball. And he, man, he would go, he'd realize, oh, you get up in the morning and we practice. And then you go and you have lunch and you recover, maybe take a nap and you come back for an evening workout later. And so there's two, maybe three workouts in the evening a day. And so Kobe realized, man, if I actually just get up at three or four o'clock in the morning, and there were guys like on the U.S. Olympic team that would talk about this. They were off partying when they're in Vegas, winning all their games, and they would come back into the hotels at 4 a.m. to find Kobe leaving fully clothed for practice, not coming back from a club. And they would say, he's going, because Kobe realized that if I just get that one extra practice, maybe that one extra practice in any given day doesn't make a difference for that game that week. But man, over time, I'm going to be untouchable. I'm going to be uncatchable. Because that one practice stacked over a summer, stacked over a year, stacked over years, stacked over a career, you couldn't catch him because you couldn't possibly catch the practice time. And what I'm trying to say when I tell you that story is I've, tried, I've been trying to use a saying in my life, like, like circumstances may get my day, but principles are going to govern my life. I want to be guided by principles. Things pop up, even with our money. Bills come up that are unforeseen. I, I got a, in the mail the other day from the toll people of Colorado. They were like, you used a toll lane illegally. And there was a lovely bill that came my way. I remember crossing over that double white line thinking to myself, how are they going to catch me? How will they know? (laughs) And uh, there's cameras involved and uh, they know. I'll just warn you right now. They know. They know what's going on. There are bills that come up. There are things that surprise us, things that catch us off guard. But I don't want to be guided by circumstances. I don't want to be blown about by whatever is happening today. I want to be governed by a predecided set of principles that I'm going to live my life by. And the Bible has a lot to say about finances. We talked about this in the first week. 2,000 verses on money and resources alone. 
500 on prayer, 500 on faith, 2,000 on money. The Bible is trying to tell us something. And so I want to walk through five different principles today that I think that we all need to apply into our life as quickly as we can in order that we might set ourselves up down the road for good things to happen through our money. And I want to remind you of a couple of the ground rules. First of all, this is not for me. This is not for the church that we're talking about this. We're not going to be taking an offering at the end of this. Uh, There's no pledge envelope in front of you that I'm going to secretly have you pull out and promise something to the church in the future. That's not what this is about. I don't think that's wrong. And there may be a series where we do that in the future, but that's not what this is. That's not what this is for. This is, again, asking God to reveal to us in our heart what's going on with our love and our attention towards money. The other thing I just want to remind you about is that in no way should this incite shame in your life. Shame is not from God. Shame is from the devil. Conviction is from God. So if you feel guilty at some point, that may be the Holy Spirit pricking you in some sort of way. But shame is not what this is about. We are trying to look forward in terms of our finances. There's no room for embarrassment here. There's no room for shame or condemnation here. That's not what we're after. We are trying to look forward with with hopefulness that God is going to be involved in our finances as much in the future and today as maybe he hasn't been in the past. I think of the old Chinese proverb where it's like, man, maybe the best day to plant that tree would have been 30 years ago. Maybe the best time for you to learn some of these things would have been 30 years ago when it comes to your money. But the second best day to start applying them to your life is when? today, right now. And so here we go. The first one is the principle of hard work. The biblical principle of hard work. And every boomer in the group right now just said a good hearty amen, right? Like it's just, it's just different with these older generations, these depression babies, these people who grew up through stuff, man, there is a discipline of hard work that as a millennial, I can pick on my own generation and below her. There seems to be a little bit of lacking approach to hard work. Yet the Bible has a lot to say about working hard, putting yourself to work, not sitting by and being idle is what the, the word is that's going to be used in the Bible often. In, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says it to us nice and strong. He says, for even when we were with you, speaking of himself now, he says, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's pretty strong, isn't it? You're like, Austin, are you using that verse out of context? Well, let's read all the context then so you can double check me. Second Thessalonians chapter three, starting in verse six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of Jesus. That's pretty strong, right? Pretty strong way to start off a command. Can't, can't use any higher authority than that right there. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. A strong now, now we have to keep in mind, church, this is a command given to brothers and sisters within the church. This is not given to people outside of the church. We have to be careful as Christians that we're not holding the world to our process of sanctification when they haven't experienced yet salvation. Do you get what I mean by that? We cannot expect them to be living a holy and sanctified life that we're endeavoring to live when they have not yet received the power of the Holy Spirit and they've given their life over to Jesus. It's impossible to follow the laws of God apart from the grace that is supported to us by Jesus himself and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So before we just look out there and say, oh man, there's all these people who are unwilling to work. I'm talking about within the church right now. So we're clear. If any brother is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone else's bread without paying for it. There was no dependence on anyone else. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It was not because we do not have that right. Notice how Paul says, I had the right to ask for you to support me in this. Paul's saying, I could have just said, hey, we're going to come. We're going to do some ministry. We're going to set up some church work. And so you're going to support me in doing this. And that would have been okay, Paul says. But instead, he thought it better to leave for them an example to imitate is what it says. So he's demonstrating them this ethic, this work ethic. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies or busy doing nothing. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is strong, isn't it? This is strong. And this is also not totally the way that our world is wired. But in the church, we have to have this expectation there. And there should be this work ethic that rises up within the church that makes us distinct from the culture that we're a part of. Christians should be known for their hard work, not for their idleness. Christians should be known for their work ethic in the jobs that you find yourself at, not for the way that you milk the clock with everyone else or gossip by the water cooler with everyone else. No, there should be a distinguishing trait among you that you are willing to work hard. Millennials and younger, let me just say, young people in the room, if you're like 20-ish at all, let me please just like bend your ear for a second. If you're not going to listen to the rest of my sermon, you should, but... Let me at least get this one point, okay? There is a growing prevalence of people who are unwilling to work around you. And for all the nervousness and fear that you might have about college coming up or what you're going to do when you grow up, let me just tell you, there is no pill that replaces hard work. And if you are willing to show up at your job, be consistent and learn and grow and put yourself into your work— it will just continually go well for you. The Bible is full of passages about sowing and reaping. And if you continue to sow into something, you will reap something out of it eventually. So keep working hard. That should be a Christian ethic. And I think the way we get this twisted so often is we think back to the creation story of Genesis and we go, well, isn't work a result of the fall? Careful, because it's not work that is a result of the fall. Let's look at it. In Genesis chapter 1, God is creating everything. He's ordering everything. He's putting it into his place. And he gets to the pinnacle of his creation, mankind and womankind. And he says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, the whole creeping thing about creeping over the earth, I don't, I'm not really here to talk about that this morning, but what I am here to acknowledge is that God gave man and woman dominion over the earth and over the livestock to cultivate them. And I have never met a farmer who doesn't acknowledge that that statement came with some work right there. Work the ground, have dominion over the livestock. Like if you have dominion over livestock, you are a person at work. I was talking, I met with this guy who goes to our church. He has 1,700 cows on a property right here in Northern Colorado. He milks them three times a day. 10,000 gallons of milk these cows make every single day. You don't think that dude's hard at work? If you're going to cultivate something, if you're going to work the ground, if you're going to have dominion over livestock, you are going to be a person at work. It says, so God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is called the cultural mandate. This is given to Adam and Eve where God says, here are the raw elements of the world that I've just created. Now take them, cultivate them, have dominion and put yourselves to work. He says it this way over in Genesis chapter two, again, before sin enters the world, God says he takes man, puts them in the garden of Eden to, what's that word? Work. work it and to keep it. I'll tell you this, like my garden is not a well-kept garden come August, September. I just get kind of tired of, of trying to cultivate my little tomato plant over the whole summer, you know? <laughs> like if you are working a garden, you are keeping a garden. It looks a certain way, doesn't it? You got to remember this. Out of the creation story, the work is a gift to Adam and Eve. Now, when sin enters in Genesis chapter 3, when we turn the page and the serpent comes on the scene and they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat from it and they break this, break this beautiful relationship that they have with God. Now, part of the curse of sin entering the world is frustrated work. And so work is now frustrating, but work is not the curse. Work is a gift. Work is now cursed because of sin. Do we understand that? We have to internalize that. We have to have a good theology of work as Christians. We were not given, like, do you know what we'll be doing in heaven? Working with our hands, using the earth as it was meant to be, without all the perversion of sin, without all the defilement of sin going on in the world we're living in. Like, my, my job has frustrating parts to it, believe it or not. My coworkers aren't always perfect. The people I work for are not always perfect. <laughs> Neither are your coworkers though. Neither are the people. There are things that frustrate you about your job. But your job is a gift from God. It is frustrated because of the complication factors of sin. But your work is a gift. This whole idea that has struck some people, especially young people early in your hearts, where you think, oh my gosh, I'm just going to get to this point where I'm 45 years old and I'm going to retire. I'm like, retire and do what? No, no, we are put on this earth to use our creativity, to use our minds, to put our bodies to work so that we might reflect the glory of God in the things that we do. So we have to have a theology of work. Proverbs 13, 4 says, the soul of a sluggard or the soul of a slavey, uh, lazy slavey, whoops, lazy person craves and gets nothing. The soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing. You'll see this about half a dozen times if you read through the Proverbs, that there seems to be a strange association between laziness, slothfulness, and discontentment. And I've thought about this this week. I'm like, why, why is it that so many times we see that the, the lazy person craves and gets nothing? I think it's because deep at the level of our soul, when we are being lazy, we are realizing there's unmet potential in our bones. Like there's something that you were put on this earth to do. And that minimum wage job might be frustrating to you right now, but can I just say this to you? You weren't meant to work a minimum wage job for your entire life. There's something bigger out there for you. There's something better out there for you. You were meant to use your mind, put yourself to work, learn something new, adopt a craft, get, get good at a craft, pour yourself into it. By the way, a Hebrew work week was six days a week. So when I talk to some people and they're like, man, I'm just really taxed right now. I'm working like 34 hours every single week. I'm like, there are more work hours than that in a week. A Hebrew work week was six days of work and one day of rest. I'm not saying that you shouldn't start working every single Saturday. I am saying though, that if you're in a financial situation, you should not be casting blame at other people. You should be first evaluating your own work ethic. 
40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, 60 hours? What? I don't know what it takes. I don't know what it takes to get through what you're in right now, but sometimes the answer is just some good old-fashioned hard work. The diligent, the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. I love that. Second principle, the principle of tithes and offerings. The principle of tithing and giving offerings. Now, the tithe is, is, I actually don't think it's that controversial. I love we like to say that it's controversial, but I don't think it's actually that controversial. The tithe shows up before the law is ever given. So you have this, you have Abraham who gives a tenth of all of his stuff to the priest Melchizedek. That's before the law is ever given to the nation of Israel. Then when the law comes, there's all sorts of tithes that are given so that the people of God as a nation, Israel, would have almost a, a tax in their theocracy where they are giving 10% of several different lanes of what they do, altogether probably about 20 to 25% of their total income, is given to the Levitical priesthood in the temple so that they can care for the temple, minister to God, and take care of all the sacrifices for the entire nation. It's this structure that God creates where the tithe, or that word literally meaning 10% of income, goes back to the temple that is caring for you so that you would receive the ministry of that temple. And that's, and that's the structure that God creates. But then it still shows up in the New Testament even. Jesus has this to say to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So I don't know what's going on in the Pharisees' house. If they've got their nice little windowsill above their sink and they've got a little herb garden going apparently. They're trimming off 10% of that thing and they're taking that over to the temple and they're checking their religious box. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. It's not that you shouldn't have been tithing. Notice this. He says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. He's like, you're combing over your spice garden, but you're not doing the things that you ought to be doing. He says, these you ought to have done. What's these? Tithing. Tithing you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the, the rebuke here is not that they're tithing. He's saying you're, you're picking and choosing pieces of the law to follow. Now, people will say, is tithing still for today? As in, is giving 10% of your income to your local church, is that still for today? That's the question. I'd say it's a little bit more of a nuanced answer because if you're asking to yourself, is me giving to the church, is that required by God? I would say, no, it is not. Jesus has fulfilled that part of the law. He has fulfilled it. Here, here's how I think we can think about it in a helpful way. Think about it in a different category, like the category of rest, of rest. Is Sabbathing required for today? No, Jesus is your Sabbath rest. Hebrews makes that perfectly clear. And yet, I will show you somebody who's not Sabbathing, who's not observing that principle, who's not following after that demonstration from God. And I will show you somebody who's close to burnout, somebody who's freaking out in their life. Somebody who's not honoring rest is having a little bit of a commitment issue with their time, not willing to surrender part of their time to God, and they're wanting to use all of their time for their own production. Do you see how those two are very, that clearly tracks with money. Is tithing required today for your salvation? Of course not. Jesus has paid all of your bill in full. Is tithing still a good and right biblical principle for you to apply to your finances? Yes, it is. You cannot forget, church, that we live in a culture that is all about stuff and is all about money. Jesus used the word mammon that encapsulates this idea. 
We are constantly being pulled by our cultural current into a culture of mammon and tithing, I believe, and this is how Katie and I work it in our own house. It is the practice that keeps us focusing on the kingdom of God, keeps us steering away from letting mammon take hold of our hearts, and instead we have an open-handed approach to our finances. And so since before we got married, Katie and I made the decision, we're going to be tithers to the local church that supports us. Right now, that church is this church. Like, I'm not just the pastor of this church. I'm a member of this church. My kids are in kids ministry somewhere. Harper is serving somewhere in this church right now. Harrison is down in kids ministry right now. This is the church that is equipping us and supporting us. And so we give 10% of everything that comes into our house as a baseline to this church. And we always will. And we pray and we hope that we actually get to keep increasing our amount of generosity. Tithing is a good right principle that you, that applied to your life, I believe is a powerful tool because what you're saying and what you're declaring with your heart when you choose to tithe is, God, I trust you with this 10% of my money more than I trust me with 100% of my money. And that's a powerful statement for you to actually put into work, into practice in your life. Now, the other concept here is giving offerings. So those two aren't the same things. We pray every single Sunday for our tithes and our offerings. A tithe is giving 10% of your income to the local church that best supports you. That's how historically the Christian church has operated. But an offering is when you are encountered with a need of some kind or an opportunity to be kind in some kind, to be generous in some kind, and you make, you make a gift. You, you do something where you, you give, you are generous. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised. Now the gift here, in the context of this, it is actually a financial gift that other people were preparing and now he's talking to other people to get it ready to go forward so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction or as an imposed thing upon somebody else. He says the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So again, this is why it's not wrong if churches pass a plate. This is just why we're not passing a plate because we're not meant to give under compulsion. God cares way more about the heart of the giver than the amount being given. So it doesn't matter what you're writing in on that check. It doesn't matter how big or how little. God is looking at your heart when you give. And if you are giving reluctantly or under compulsion, God is not after your money. For God loves a cheerful giver. That Greek word is hilaron. Do you know what that word sounds like in English? Hilarious. I don't even know what that has to look like for you to look like a, be considered a hilarious giver. You're just like, <laughs> as you like hand off money or something. Like some sort of psycho that's just giving their money away. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a giver that understands, no, God, you've given me all of this. God, you've taken care of my needs before. Even if I have to write this check that seems sacrificial right now, I'm going to do it. And God loves when we're giving cheerfully and anonymously, by the way, not letting know what other people are doing. I, I will never know who gives what in this church. That's something we protect at the very core level of how we operate our finances because I never want to be impartial or partial in how I'm pastoring this church. I will never know who gives what in this church. But God loves a cheerful giver. He's after your heart. Acts, you see it all over Acts, the early church, what they're committed to more than a percentage point that they're trying to fill in on their income sheets. They're committed to radical generosity. 
And you see it in Acts chapter 2, you see it in Acts chapter 4, where they get together and they see somebody has a need and they decide, I'm going to sell this thing, I'm going to fast, I'm going to go without food so that this person's needs can get taken care of. It's this crazy generosity. It says in Acts 20, in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. We must help the weak. We must remember the words of Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I just, I would challenge you, look for opportunities in your life right now where you could give an offering, where you could see somebody who's in need. And, and listen, the smallest gifts can go the longest way sometimes. But I hope that we would be a church that's not just giving our tithe, but we're also saying when chances for scholarships pop up to send students down to desperation, we just go, hey, I'm going to send a kid down there. I don't care if they have financial means. I don't care if they're well off. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to get a kid down there because they're going to encounter Jesus powerfully down at Desperation Conference. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that God is going to prompt you and give you opportunities to be generous. Malachi 3.10, probably the most popular passage on this concept of tithes and offerings where the prophet says, bring the full tithe. God says through the prophet, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, God says, put me to the test. There's this invitation to trust God. He says, test me in this. And the prosperity gospel that is ridiculous would say, if you give God, if you sow into God financially, he will bless you financially. And that is not how it works, folks. That is not how this is operating. That's not even what this verse is saying. It says, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God says, test me in bringing the tithe and his, prov- his provision will always then be providential. God will always give you what you need. And that does not just mean finances. He might bring you actually a season of despair if that's what your soul most needs to draw you most closely to him. He might bring you a trial. He might bring you spiritual victory in some other area. God is just inviting us to play by saying, test me in this. See if I'm not a better manager of 90% of your funds than you are with the whole 100. Third thing, third principle is the principle of saving and investing. Saving and investing. I think there could be a dangerous teaching in the church where there are some people who kind of are allowed to adopt this poverty mindset where we think that, well, I just shouldn't own anything then, or I shouldn't have anything. And I actually don't think that's what the Bible teaches either. The Bible teaches this in Proverbs 21, that there are precious treasures and oil there in the house of a man's dwelling, in, the, in, a, in a wise man's dwelling. So the wise man has, has taken some of his treasure. He's taken some of his oil. He's taken some of the stuff he could have used in a moment, and he's not using all of it, but instead he's setting some of it aside for later. There are stores of oil. There are stores in the house of the wise, but a foolish man devours everything. So what is that saying? That's saying that if you are consistently burning through everything that ever comes into your hands, that is a foolish approach to it. And a more wise thing for you to do is to take a piece, a sliver, even if it's a small piece. Listen, I know, I know margins are thin right now. I know that things are expensive. I know that incomes aren't driving up as much as as they maybe used to. I know that times are difficult, but as much as you can, a sliver, a portion, some bit is meant to be set aside and saved or invested in a future for a future time. Now, the mistake we can make when we think about saving or investing for the future is we think about this, like I'm just going to keep saving and investing for the future that I want someday. What's the problem with that statement? I don't think God's interested in the future that you want someday. God's saying, no, save and invest for the future that I want for you someday. 
God is the owner always. It's not like, it's not like I've been tithing and I've also then been saving and retire, like putting some money in stocks or whatever for my own retirement so that when I finally get to retirement age, I get to go, great, I've already tithed on all this money, so I'm just done now. Right? That would take this approach that like I am driving all of this myself and so that when I finally get to retirement, I can finally just do whatever it is that I want to do. That is not a Christian mentality. A Christian mentality is, God, I always belong to you. I will, my money will always belong to you. And so even as I save, even as I invest, I am trying to be as prepared as I can be for any opportunity that you bring my way in the future because we belong to God. It's like socialism says, hey, your money belongs to everyone else and makes everyone poor. And capitalism makes, makes a few people rich and says that you can do whatever it is that you want with your money. But, but kingdom economics says your money isn't yours. Your money isn't everyone else's. Your money is God's and you're going to use it the way that he directs you over time. It doesn't fit perfectly in, into either of our world systems. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That means you should be saving. You should be investing in a kind of way where you can leave something to your grandkids. And I just want to say, it's maybe some of you people who are in the fourth quarter of life right now. And maybe that investment account isn't as strong as you wanted it to be or as we dreamed it would be someday. I would just say, don't, don't think of this as purely monetary. There are things that you can entrust and leave to your grandkids today that has nothing to do with finances. You can teach them some things. I know so many of you, I'm looking at even some of your faces. I know you get to spend quality time on a weekly basis with your grandkids. It's probably true that one of the last things they want from you is money. Actually, they need to learn some things from you. They need to, they need to have some, they need, we have grandsons that need to be taught something from their grandpas. We have granddaughters that desperately need to hear words of wisdom, words of value spoken from their grandmothers. And so, yeah. Leave an inheritance to your children's children and don't just think of that as purely monetary. The context of this is monetary, but don't think of it as only monetary inheritance that we're leaving to the people following up behind us. A sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous, which means that if you are self-focused, selfish, always spending on you, sinful with your money, eventually your money is going to be utilized by somebody else who's better at stewarding it than you are. The fourth thing is the principle of financial integrity. The principle of financial integrity. We are always meant to be living with our lives focused on Jesus, keeping our hearts pure from the love of money. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Notice how being free from the love of money and being content are lying right next to each other on purpose. You cannot be free from the love of money if you are constantly discontent with your status of life right now. We have to be content. We have to ask God for contentment with what with where we're at in life. Jesus has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again, it is always good for you to ask yourself, how am I being formed with the patterns and routines in my life right now? And the world that we are living in is constantly forming us to be in love with and obsessed with stuff and money. And so you need to constantly be pulling yourself back to saying, no, I want kingdom vision with my finances. I want to have good financial integrity all the time. Because like I just talked about the kind of the two world systems that we have to offer. Capitalism, I, I know my cards are on the table sometimes and I'll, I'll kind of show that I think that's a better way of going and I'll mock socialism a little bit. But what's the, what's the detriment of capitalism? Greed. 
it's completely permissible within that system. System, You can be as greedy and as selfish and as focused on you as you possibly want to be. But the Bible would bid us always to be valuing people over profit, right? So when I think of having good financial integrity, this probably tells a lot about my own heart, but there's two places where my mind goes to pretty quickly. The first one is taxes. Yeah? Romans 13. We're going to go there. All right. I hope you're with me. Romans 13, chapter, uh, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Pay your taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Good reminder. Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. It is, it is a Christian value that we would render to Caesar what belonged to Caesar's. Now, I was talking with an accountant recently, and he said a line that I thought was brilliant. Tax strategy is good stewardship. Tax evasion is sin. <laughs> and that's something that we should keep in mind, isn't it? I'm not saying that you should pay every tax just because. I'm saying you should not. You don't even look for tax loopholes. You, lose, you use the tax code to, to have a strategy, have a plan with your taxes. Don't just, don't just write the biggest check you can possibly write to the government. You're not Elon Musk. Don't, you don't have a point to prove. You know what I mean? But make a strategy, make a plan, but at the end of the day, write the check, pay your taxes to evade them. Even if you think the government's misusing your funds uh, to the 10th degree, doesn't matter. It's a biblical command, pay your taxes. The other thing I think of is how, man, we ought to value people, care for people over caring for our own livelihood sometimes. It says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Don't you just love the way James talks to you? It's like a nice bedtime story, you know? You're like, ah, oh, thank you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat and, and they will eat your flesh like fire. Now, what does this kind of sound like? It sounds like Jesus' words that we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where they'll stay perfect for forever. James is talking to some rich people who have invested everything into this world. And he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers you, who, move, who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So these rich people who are reluctant to pay the people who are working for them, what they are owed and what they are due. And James condemns them right there. We have to make sure that we are valuing and caring for the people. I'm talking to some of you who have people working for you right now. You need to be caring for the people working for you more than you care about your own personal profit line. And sometimes you're going to make the sacrifice of paying people better, taking care of people versus padding your own profit or going on another vacation this year. I'm not knocking your vacation this year. Go on the vacation, but make sure you're also caring for the people who work for you. Set the tone as a Christian leader that you're going to be open-handed and generous to every, per every person that comes around you. 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Don't muzzle the ox, as in let the ox eat freely from the grain as it does its work. A laborer deserves his wages. Pay a reasonable wage. I, I love this. Um, there's a story of Martin Luther. 
And you can't really find this quote. Martin Luther is one of the fathers of the Reformation, right? Martin Luther, he's, he's going around, he's teaching all these people about the Reformation. He has these compelling messages. People are listening to him. And there's a, there's, the story goes, there's a cobbler, a shoemaker, who approaches Martin Luther at the end of one of his talks. And he's like, what, what do I got to do next? What do I, like, I'm in. And he's asking, like, should I go to seminary? Should I become a minister? Should I start becoming like a Christian teacher of some kind? And that's not Martin Luther's answer for him. You know what it is? He's like, go back to your business. And his answer to them, this is, the, this is the, how the story goes. He says, make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. So the father of the Reformation, what does he have in mind? He says, man, when it comes to your work, work hard, learn your craft, get good at what you do, and then treat other people with dignity and respect as you go about your business. Honor other people. Don't try, to, don't try to make a crap shoe and get all these profit margins. You're not Nike, right? You're not trying to make some shoe that falls apart in two days. Like make something nice and sell it at a fair price to somebody. That, this, there's this idea that we have to maintain financial integrity and this only gets harder the more resources you have. You don't think it's a little harder to look at your tax bill the same way now that you actually are making money compared to when you made no money and then the government gave you back money all the time? No, it's harder. You think it's harder now that you're in charge of the business, now that you see the, the profit and loss statements every single month and you see what's going on? You don't think it's harder to kind of hoard or to get fearful a little bit more rather than to pay your employees well? No, the more you've been entrusted with, the more difficult it gets to remain faithful, to remain full of integrity. But that is the call of the Christian, is to remain full of financial integrity. Last point I have for you is the principle of financial discomfort. I think that it is the call of Christians that no matter what age or stage of life you're in, you should be making some sort of contribution to the kingdom, whether through tithes, whether through offerings, that require some level of sacrifice. We should be seeking discomfort financially as Christians. It's one of the best ways if you found yourself so caught up with greed or so caught up with uh, measuring yourself to other people and trying to get in this competition or comparison of who has what and keeping up with the Joneses. And you go, no, I'm instead going to live on more financial margin, less financial margin than I've ever had so that I can be as generous as I've ever been. Jesus says it this way, Luke 16. We kind of read the parable like this out of Matthew, but I want to read it for you this week in, out of Luke. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So if you can't manage your money correctly, if you can't order your life around the kingdom of God, then who's going to entrust to you the true riches is what Jesus says. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who is going to then give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There, there are more biblical principles than this than we could possibly cover today. I didn't even talk about debt. We didn't talk about other things. By the way, the Bible has nothing to say that debt is sinful, but it never has anything nice to say about debt. So you want to find yourself all over leveraged and getting after it with your house or whatever. Like, listen, the Bible just has a word of caution about leveraging, over leveraging yourself with debt. Consumer debt, for sure. We have to figure out how to live within our means. There's so many financial principles I didn't talk on, but these five, here's, I want to put them back up on the screen. And I want, I want to just lay before you. Uh, this is how, man, like, Katie and I have ordered our life this way since we were in our early 20s, since before we got married even. And I'm so grateful for like Dennis and Diana Bruns. I don't even know if they're here today, but like teaching us a financial peace class, basically when we were 19 years old, teaching us some of these principles. 
And man, like Katie and I, we were, we were broker than broke when we first got married. I'm talking 400 square foot apartment, no dishwasher, two dishwashers actually, if you're counting them right here, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Oven that was like this big, you had to rotate the Totino's pizza so it cooked evenly halfway through, you know? <laughs> we were poor, man. We had no money. And yet we tithed, we gave to our church. We found opportunities to be hilariously generous where it was like, God, I've, there's no way you're asking us to do that right now. You serious? It was like, yeah. And we've been formed. And man, now, now we have more means. We have a little more income. And, and it's like, man, I want to work hard. I want to work as hard as ever, actually. I, I want to keep tithing. I want to keep, I, I'm hopeful that the amount of money that we're giving away just keeps increasing year over year. I want to keep in saving and investing for whatever future God has for us in our lives. Because it's all his already. It's going to continue to be his. We got to keep integrity. We got we to stay faithful. We got to stay on the right track. And we got to always be seeking financial discomfort. Every single person in this room, you are probably not where you used to be financially. I know a lot of you. Maybe you've taken some crazy steps. And, and my challenge to you is don't let, the, don't let the sink of comfort settle into your bones. Like keep pushing forward into discomfort because the Holy Spirit does his best work when we're uncomfortable, doesn't he? And then like I was, I was talking about this series, ran into a gal who goes to the gym, who goes to our church. She's, she's uh, sitting next to you in these seats, right? She's part of us, part of our family older gal. I knew that about a year ago she'd retired. So we were catching up. We were talking. She's always one of the most positive, upbeat ladies that I've ever seen in my entire life, actually. She's kind of one of those annoying people to run into in the gym because you're just like, like, I am just not trying as hard as you, <laughs> you know? And I'm talking to her and she's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm back. I'm back at work. I'm like, oh, you're back at work. What, what's going on? And she just said, you know, there's too much, too much month at the end of the money. I loved how she said that, like too much month at the end of the money. And then she, started, she kept talking about it. And she said, you know what? Honestly, we just, it's our tithe money. That's, that's why I'm working. I went back to Worth so we can keep tithing and not dip into our investments more than we want to. And man, in the moment, she was super positive. She wasn't, even, she wasn't even worried about that decision at all. I was like sad for her for some reason. Like she wasn't sad for herself at all. But I got to tell you, like I, I walked away from that and I was totally struck. I was totally humbled in that moment because here's a gal who could be enjoying her retirement, living on, whatever, and she's chosen to go back to work so that she can keep giving to the church. And that, that humbles the heck out of me. Is, I, I know that story is true all over this room. What I've learned about tithes is that it's easier for people to trust God ideally with your 10%. It's harder for you to trust the church with 10%. I don't know that there's maybe wounds and things that have happened in your past, but that's why we try to maintain as much financial integrity as we possibly can, accountability as we possibly can. But man, we as a church, like when I hear stories like that, I'm like, I'm doubled down. I'm like, we are going to work hard as church leaders here. Like if you're on the payroll here, if you're on staff, like we are working hard. We're coming in at weird hours. We're setting goals. We're pushing ourselves. We're challenging each other. We're giving each other feedback. It's, we're working hard because this is a huge privilege that you all trust us with your finances. And I know you trust God primarily, not just us, but I'm saying that's, that's a big deal. We're going to be a church that gives tithes and offerings. We, we keep giving over 10% of our income as a church goes out the door to local and global ministry partners. It's to the tune of almost $200,000 this year, which is amazing. We're going to keep saving and investing as a church. As a 501c3, we're going to have money set aside in case emergencies come up, but we're going to keep also investing in whatever future it is that God has for this church. We're going to keep practicing financial integrity. There's going to be multiple people with eyes on the money, and I'm not going to make decisions about how much I get paid every single year. We're going to keep making decisions that are correct and right, but we're also going to keep seeking financial discomfort. We're going to keep pushing the ball forward because 
because the gospel is way too valuable for us to not realize that there are financial resources that are tied to the gospel going forward in the world we live in today. You need space. You need places to gather. You need things to, you need things to do. You need people to go resource. So we're going to keep pushing the ball forward and stay discomfort, in, in a place of discomfort. And so as we end today, I'd love to just pray through these five biblical principles. Judy, you can throw that up. And the last thing that I want is for something I said to stir you emotionally in some kind of way where you start doing something. Because that's going to result in you just kind of checking religious boxes. No, what, I, what I'd really love is for the Holy Spirit to prompt you in which one of these you're maybe uh, just missing right now in your life. What principle have you just avoided in your life? And so I just want to kind of pray through these. But I, again, I want this more to be about you and the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to kind of lead us through a time of prayer. So you can, you can close your eyes. You can look at the list as I go through it if you want. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just, um, God, we look at that first principle of hard work. And I know that, man, comfort, laziness, it's easy to slip into. It's easy to get comfortable. And God, I pray that you would restore some vision to people who have slipped into that over the years. God, restore some vision of what their life could be like, the gifts that you really have given to them, the work that you have laid out for them that they could be doing right now. God, help us be people as Christians that, man, unless we aren't able to work, we're, we aren't dependent on anyone else. We're putting our hand to the plow. We're, we're, we're getting out there and doing it. And God, for, for tithes and offerings, God, I pray, I know this one can, it can be hard for people sometimes because that's a huge percentage to just write out of your budget every single month. And so God, ultimately my prayer here is that for people who aren't trying this, I pray that they would try in a demonstration of their trust to you. Not for this church, God, I just I pray that for their own heart, would they, would they genuinely come to this experience where they trust you wholeheartedly with their finances? God, our, our savings account, our investment accounts, God, I, I pray that as we look at those, would we not get too eager to disengage from the mission that you've called for our life? God, and even if we've maybe been comfortably enjoying retirement, God, would you help us, would you help us lean back in a little bit and seek your kingdom with a little more tenacity in these coming months? For financial integrity, God, I just, there could be people who are bending rules or even flat out breaking rules right now when it comes to how they're using the funds that you've given to them. And I pray that you'd convict them if they need convicting. Help us treat people well. Help us treat people with respect. Pay reasonable wages. Pay our taxes. God, help us, help us continue to relieve our hearts of a love for money. And God, for every single person in this room, I pray that we would consider ways even this upcoming week, how we could seek some financial discomfort. Maybe there we encounter somebody in need um, at the grocery store. Maybe we just know of a coworker who's going through it right now. Help us, help us do something generously and anonymously that just would really bless somebody else this week. Jesus, we love you and we're for you. We want to see your kingdom come in Northern Colorado as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you go ahead and stand? I want to, I know we've gone a little over what we usually go, and so you're probably tired of hearing me talk, but uh, I got one more minute, all right? Um, the critical conversation. Judy, could you throw that critical conversation slide up? If the stats are true, um, there's a lot of people even in this room right now who are really in a tough spot financially. But I want to say um, what Taylor and Sarah are putting together here, it's for people who are just looking at how to take that next step with your money. And so if you are, if you're trying to build up a savings account, if you're trying to buy a house, if you're trying to pay down some debt, if you're trying to just get a new job or take that next step, whatever that looks like, I just, it can be hard in the church to ask for some help sometimes. 
But man, there are some really gifted, loving people who would love to just sit down with you because personal finances, like Dave Ramsey talks about this all the time, it's 20% what you know, it's 80% how you behave. And sometimes to behave a little better when it comes to your money, you just need some good friends in your corner to kind of keep track and to talk with you about some things. What does the proverb say? That in an abundance of counsel, there is safety. So man, maybe you just go to this and you just, you find some friends who you can help process through financial decisions with. I know it's weird. I, don't like, I know we don't like talking about it, but we wanted to create a space where if you wanted to take that step to get some help, then you could get it. So I'd encourage you and just beg you, if you're in that spot where you just need to take that next step, get signed up for this today for sure. I'm gonna pray just a blessing for us as we walk out of here today. Um, Lord, we love you so much. God, I'm just, I'm in awe of the generosity of this church. I'm in awe of the generosity you've poured out in my own life, God. And I just pray for every single one of us. Would we, would we set ourselves apart right now, be distinguished as hard workers, people who are generous, people who uh, save and, and think wisely and people who ultimately, God, we wanna be people who leverage everything we have for your kingdom because the time on earth is short. We're not here that long. And we wanna make an impact with everything that we have and everything that we can. So Jesus, I pray that this week you really would prompt us and give us ideas of how we can, how we can bless somebody else. We've been blessed. Help us be a blessing. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.